Hello and welcome to Divided by Brand, the weekly podcast show for entrepreneurs, business owners and influencers. If you want to learn more about branding, hear from industry experts and first-hand accounts about ways that you might find yourself divided by your own business's brand, then this is the show for you. Join me, your host, Dan O'Cook, a brand identity specialist with over 20 years design experience and founder of Vi Design Co. I'm going to talk everything brand, but more specifically, I want to go behind the scenes of real life brand challenges that businesses and individuals have faced that has left them divided in their mind or divided by the people around them. I want you to learn with me exactly what real life brand divides people have faced and by overcoming them, did they help to create success? It's the show that's going to have a host of different branding stories. I'm going to be speaking with people on personal branding, corporate branding. I want to speak with artists and designers, even streamers. I want to put these guests in front of you and get them to open up about their own brand divides. And I think you'll agree, that's quite enough jazzy intro. Can we just start the show, please? Welcome to this episode of Divided by Brand. My name's Dan O'Cock, and here's what's coming up on today's show. I've got a fantastic guest in my Divided by Brand spotlight today. I'm talking with Andy Platt. Now, Andy is a former head teacher of three different Sheffield schools. But why I've got Andy on the show is because for me, he's best known on his work and his passion for No Horizon. No Horizon is a musical that Andy has written. He has given up his career twice in education in order to pursue it. I want to get behind the scenes of what made Andy stop what he was doing in his career to pursue what he loved doing in his spare time. How did he manage to take what was almost a sideline passion project into something that people would pay to come and see? Join me as I speak to Andy and find out his biggest brand dividing moments so far on his journey. And also I've asked Andy to come up with who his boldest brand of this episode will be. Whether it's a business or a personal brand, I want to find out who he thinks is doing a good job at the moment. So welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, as you know, the, the, the focus of this show is to talk about people's journey and how brand has helped influence what they've done in their lives and whether it's business or personal stuff, um, brand and design can often play a big role in that. Um, I know from what you've, the details that you've sent over in your background that a huge part of your life has been education and I kind of wanted to just start the ball rolling with I guess what's brought you to this point um, in life and you know a little bit a little bit of a recap of what you've done and the, the three schools that you've worked at not not too much detail but just so the listeners can build up that picture of of, of exactly what you've been involved with. Uh, yeah, that's fine. So, uh, yeah, I was in education um, from, I think it's probably about 1992 to uh, 2017, something like that. Uh, I came to it a bit late. I'd, um, I left uni- I went to university at York and I studied economics uh, for some reason, which <laughs> in retrospect, I have no real idea. I'd done quite well at A-level and I didn't really have anything else desperate that I really wanted to do and so I suppose it was actually a passport to get into university as much as anything else Um, but when I came out at the other end I had no idea about what I I then wanted to get myself involved in Um, I I did it I got a place on a journalism course actually originally 
um, uh, in Sheffield and I was going to go and do that. It was a calendar year course. You were to start in the January, but by about kind of September, October, I started to find myself thinking I just couldn't face the idea of another year of training. Right. Um, uh, and it, it, very interestingly, when, when I went on for the, uh, for the interview, uh, I'd met a real kind of dyed-in-the-wool Fleet Street journalist type. Okay. Um, uh, and he said to me, he says, uh, so what's journalism about? He says, uh, it's not it's not about writing. If you come here because you want like, want like writing stuff, then forget it. It's about getting the news. It's about getting in people's faces in circumstances where um, uh, you don't want to uh, take a backward step. And I'm thinking, well, actually, this isn't really what I'm what I signed up for. Actually, not what I. And that, as time went by and the course got closer and closer. Well, well, for a start, I guess for for a day one uh, first conversation, that's a bit of a wake up call, right? It was. I mean, that was that was yeah, absolutely. And that was the other interview. So I kind of said the right things to him because I kind of wanted to do the course. But as, to, as, as, the, as the course started to approach, more and more I started thinking, I just that, that's not what I want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, me interest lay in the kind of uh, English side of things, the writing side of things. So uh, plus, I also then start thinking, do I really want another year's training? So cut a long story short, I ended up. Uh, going and training as an accountant because it became apparent that um, people doing um, uh, economics at university typically go into accountancy, uh, which I didn't know before. Uh, and in the absence of any other ideas, I thought, well, I'll, go on, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a go. So uh, I, I got a job working with Price Waterhouse um, in, in Leeds big city firm yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. know international company and all that going out on audits and, uh, and these other kind of significant companies and, and I absolutely hated it. it it didn't suit me at all and I started to really feel like a square peg in a round hole mm-hmm. um, I can imagine just didn't um, and I, you know I was, I, was, I was relatively young and I suppose I never went out to get enough advice I don't think um, and so I found myself doing that after about six months because I was studying for the accountancy exams. I hated that. Um, six months down the line, I thought, I can't carry on with this. It was the kind of place where uh, if you went on the top floor, you, you had to put your jacket on because that's where the partners were. And things oh, were. man. That, Sounds that, horrendous. That, Sounds horrible. Yeah, absolutely, it was. <laughs> and so I, that, I don't know if... Sorry to interrupt there, Andy. I don't know if, right. if it's to do with... Um, the, the era or the the year that that was in, but that um, the the fact that you found yourself in a job or a role where it was more where you thought you should be, not where you where your passion lay. Do you think that that's harder to, to it's harder for that to happen now? Do you think there's more guidance and structure around helping people to find their true calling in life rather than be kind of ushered into what's a proper job air quotes yeah um quite quite possibly actually but i I know a number of young people now who still experience some of those difficulties i do think it's a difficult time moving that that transition moving out of university and into the working world um i've done quite a lot of work subsequently with, with with trainee teachers um you know and they sometimes find it a very challenging set of circumstances and what what they actually get into is perhaps not what they envisaged they were getting into um I, but i do think there's more guidance i do think there's more support but yeah. i do think it's incumbent on people to seek it out and, and make the best use of it I, I think even now if i was in that world i'm not sure i would do i was kind of um you know, I suppose uh, you could positively phrase it as being independent-minded in that I kind of wanted to sort myself out and so on. But um, I think I know what you mean. I, I, I was, I guess, I, at school people would ask you what do you want to be, and uh, I never knew the answer. And yeah. I'm not even sure. I well, I do know what I do, but what do I want to be? It's <laughs> yeah. a very open-ended yeah. question, really, isn't it? Absolutely, um, is, yeah. It's um, a cr- and, and especially when you're 13 years old or whatever age it is now when they ask you what do you want to be because I'd imagine it still pops up but yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a funny question that and you feel pressured and um, you can often just find yourself as a as a young person being I'm going to give this answer just to shut them up <laughs> yeah well I, I said to my 
lads all the time they were growing up I said just just do what you want to do find something that you love doing because then you know it's not like going to work is it then it becomes, yeah. it becomes a pleasure to get out of bed every morning and 100%. I think yeah yeah what, what actually that <laughs> might be just the way my lads reacted but I think mad as it sounds I think even that then creates a degree of pressure oh what the hell do I want to do I've got to find something <laughs> I really like to do um, and I think well, the best probably just a gentle approach yeah um, yeah, I agree. I mean, well, let's bring that... Let's focus on what you just said there about doing what you love to do because let's bring this up to the present day and what mm. you're doing right now. What I want to do is just to look at what you've been doing over the last, say, two or three weeks. Um, I know at the moment we're all going through a bit of a strange period with um, a pandemic that's in place and it's been on lockdown, but I don't want to focus too much on on that. But what have you been up to to keep yourself busy? Um, what do you enjoy doing now? And, you know, where have, where have you been spending your time? Uh, well, what I've most recently been doing is um, uh, recording a few demos with uh, a friend. I, I used to have a band, and this is way back in the day, and this, this was part of my... Part of my uh, I suppose my, my, my challenge to going through them early phases was that although I got my career and when I went into teaching it was the same, what I really loved was my band. I write songs um, and, and I was that was always my passion. Um, but the, obviously making money out of it and sort of making it is, is monumentally difficult. Um, but Alex, who used to be in the band, I was chatting to him on the phone the other day and he, he, he's similar age, runs a company, um, but managed to get a bit of time on his hands. And he'd, he'd started uh, using, doing some uh, mixing uh, on his. He used to go to music colleges uh, when, when he was younger, and um, he's got back into it and started uh, got in his apple and started doing arrangement, posting bits and pieces. And we were chatting. Um, and the result of that, of course, was, well, I said, well, I'll send you some songs. I just arrange them, do whatever you want with them. You know, just have a, have a go. I'd be interested to see what you make of it. So right. um, I, I've been getting into, into that. And if I'm honest with you, absolutely loved it. Um, it's um, it's kind of reminded me about part of me that I'd forgotten about, really. Um, and uh, we're, on it. We're, we're kind of dabbling. There's a lot of learning on the technology side of it. I think at both ends, really. Alex is a bit ahead of me. He's been doing it for longer. Um, but he's, you know, we've been, things have been back. I'm on Garage, Garage Band. He's on a different piece of software, but thankfully they're compatible, and uh, and and we kind of mail bits and pieces to each other. So that's awesome. That's the total joy. So you've basically had a, a lockdown reawakening of the musical passion and love that you had from from yesteryear. Yeah, I have, and I mean, I, you know, I, I know we're, we're going to get on to talking about No Horizon, the musical, um, but it's interesting, most of the musical stuff from, from No Horizon was actually composed a long time ago, um, and it's actually quite a long time since I've had, uh, frankly, an outlet to actually warrant writing something for, um, because... Um, it's it's about purpose. I think a lot of it is with me anyway. You know, I've kind of written stuff for myself. It sits on a piece of paper, or, or it sits on a recording on my iPhone or whatever, and then that's it. Nothing else happens to it afterwards. Um, but working with Alex, uh, I, I kind of there's a degree of obligation in that. You know, you, 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 I'm getting stuff across to him, and it gives me a little bit of a deadline, a sense of urgency, and and that's how things things come about. Isn't it? I've been so immersed previously. Yeah. No Horizon, the project that I've kind of neglected a lot of this uh, the songwriting side of things. I did do a gig I don't know, about three years ago, something like that, a fairly informal and impromptu affair. Um, but yeah, really, really enjoying it. So it has, yeah, a bit of a reawakening there. I think that's really good to hear, and I think that it's, I've had it before with my with my art, my creative side of things when. I shelved, not shelved, but I parked what was my talent for drawing and um, being artistic. Probably when I started to get more into digital design and um, actually being a professional graphic designer, um, the the art stuff just kind of played second fiddle. And uh, it, it wasn't until, let me have a think on years now, let's say 10 years ago, I started to see an emergence or more people um, 
producing art and putting it out on social media and I'd be like oh I like the look of that and that you know yeah. that's really impressive and slowly but surely I got back into it and yeah. found myself enjoying it so much it was a complete escape from everything yeah. um, you know it was a, like a real awakening of stuff and mm. that then served as a springboard for me to go on and set up an online shop start to produce some art that I could then sell gain yeah, a following uh, and it kind of spiraled it went from there and, I, and yeah. I made a decision and I don't know what your stance will be on it with music but I made a decision with my art after a while I said you know, I'm choosing what I want to draw and when I want to draw it. And for now, I'm going to keep it like that. So rather than try and make a living at it, I only draw when I want to draw. Um, mm. And it's it's like a passion. It's a sideline project, if you like. And yeah. it stays like that. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting, Dan. Um, and, and, and there is a parallel there, definitely. I think that one of the things about... Um, that kind of activity, whether it's whether it's playing, writing music, or whether it's drawing, you are using a different part of your brain, aren't you? And um, I mm-hmm. think that's something that, um, in the kind of cut and thrust of getting things done, moving things on, trying to get this successful or make that happen, um, you, it's very easy to neglect that more reflective. Uh, side of the brain which is where often your insights come from and I think that's something that absolutely happened to me over the last well through all my time in education I've, you know, it was all about uh, getting planned ready for the next lesson it was about doing the marking afterwards it was churning your way through an existence mm-hmm. um, and, and to start with when I was uh, when I started out embarking on my teaching career I was able to kind of keep the two things running parallel, but as my responsibility started to take over in teaching, you know, I, got, I became a deputy head, then I became a head. Um, our kids were growing up. Um, everything to do with the kind of creative side of it became more and more complex. And so I had a band for about 13 years. And in the end, um, it, I, I didn't, I, I wanted to characterize it like this at the time, but there was, there was a, some sort of internal warfare going on be, between the career and, and the musical outlet and yeah. ultimately it was the, it was the career that won because that's what pays the mortgage and that's what gets the family through and, and so on so I absolutely welcome now chance to be doing more of this what will come of it I've no idea but in a small way I'm even quite happy with that not having a, a proper uh, plan for mm-hmm. it you know, I agree it, yeah. chance I think- conversation let's do it let's see what happens and yeah and um, just, yeah, exactly. And I, th- I, th- I think there's a not a generation, but like there's a there's a definite niche or like a select number of people out there, like yourself, that have reached reach a point in in life where, I mean, do you class yourself as retired? Is that a right way to summarise? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. So uh, <laughs> I suppose technically I, I am at early retirement and this, yeah. this is what happened to me. So uh, basically I got I was I was head uh, in a fabulous school, lovely staff, lovely kids, great parents, lovely community. I couldn't have wanted a nicer school. Uh, but I've been a head for 10 years and been around the cycle of school development for 10 years and then No Horizon started to gain some traction. Uh, and ultimately, I got to the point, I, we'd been to Edinburgh with No Horizon, had an absolute blast, and it went down really well. And that was kind of um, a, a, quite a seminal moment, really. And I went back to school in the September. I'd, for the first time ever, I'd done no school schoolwork over the summer, because basically we were in Edinburgh for four weeks. Yeah. Um, got back in October, September, we were due a... Um, uh, an inspection at any time. I felt way behind uh, in terms of preparation. I've always been kind of quite belt and braces and and, and that didn't sit comfortable with me. Um, but at the same time, I've got this kind of burning, reignited passion for doing creative things. Um, and, and, and my career really reached a bit of a crossroads and I, and I discovered that if I took early retirement, I could get by. Um, so it's not um, especially lucrative, but it, it, it's, it, was, it, was, it's certainly manageable. Yeah. Um, so well, I, I, do you think that? Yeah. Um, sorry, interrupt again, Andy. Do you think that That's you've right. reached a point where 
that your passion at the time was the musical and that was where you were really enjoying spending a lot of your time and it it then took away from being able to do your job at the level that you wanted and then you found that there was a there was a there was a conflict and you then had to reevaluate which one was going to take most of your time up that that's a absolutely spot on. It's a brilliant question, and and, and the answer is, is is absolutely yes. I, I I'd gone back to school. Um, I, I knew that I, the thing about Edinburgh is that you are very much um, immersed in this bubble of activity that's not the real world. And you, I have to, you know, I wasn't naive, so I went and experienced that and loved it. I knew that it wasn't life wasn't going to carry on like that. But it, it did put into sharp focus me the spring in my step when I got out of bed in Edinburgh compared with how I felt when I was getting out of work. Yeah. And the first term back, um, when I was in school, um, I felt um, it, it was probably the most difficult term that I had in education because I was really wrestling with what, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And it got to Christmas um, and I just thought, to hell with it, to be honest with you, I, that, this is where I am. Uh, there's that expression, in the leap and the net will appear. And so I thought, well, let's let, let's just do it. So I, I, I leapt, um, supported by Rachel, my wife, who was uh, very understanding. She, she knew I'd kind of reached a bit of an end. It was very, very sapping is the education world nowadays. Um, I would imagine that she knew long before you. I think that's a trait of um, other halves and wives that um, they can sense when things aren't right, when there's that imbalance in the force, yeah. if you like, can't they? Long yeah. before you actually made the decision. Yeah. yeah. So, and, that, so, and so it was in the end, and it was that whole thing, you know, once I, once I took the decision, once all the indecision disappeared, all of a sudden, the world was a different place. Yeah, um, and that's where you start to get more resourceful, into it? You know, you, you, you when you when you cut the cord, it, and it uh, slightly cliche, I suppose, but it's sink or swim, isn't it? And uh, I, I know, had to find it? a way. It's just a real uh, so awakening. Think, it's a proper yeah, moment, it is. isn't it? Yeah, it is. I found that with the whole coronavirus thing, more, more general, not not specifically about me, but. Basically, there's all sorts of people who are suddenly thrust into these unfamiliar circumstances and great challenges. But human beings are so resourceful when when forced to make things happen. Um, and, and I, you know, you, you see it all over the place people finding solutions to complex problems um, because they need to do. Um, and suddenly, it again, it's that thing. You know, there's an explosion of. Um, imagination and, and, and possibility, I think. Yeah. Uh, people seek solutions. Agree, um, 100%. Uh, but when they would not, you know, people would have typically been happy to have um, pursued the status quo. And I think that's what happened to me. But I did know that. Uh, I, I did know that I couldn't, I, I was someone who was always very committed to my job. And I didn't feel like I could have just carried on treading water. I suppose that's quite quite a relevant thing I knew that I, I, I would have gained no satisfaction whatsoever from simply taking the money and keeping things ticking over some people yeah. it doesn't work couldn't. I mean it just for me having been there as well it, it's um, it, it harms you mentally and it affects yeah. It affects you on every level and aspect of your life as well because you're yes, not happy does, at yeah. home you're not happy, the people around you know that they're not happy etc it goes on it's just, it's just a loop Let's talk about because we've we have or you have mentioned up to this point No Horizon and to people that are listening, they're not going to know what No Horizon they won't know what No Horizon is, they won't know where it's come from. Um, so I want to turn the focus on to that because um, to give the listeners a bit of background um, for, for my interest in in you as a guest and what No Horizon is is we we have worked together as as client and um, supplier. So Andy is the writer of a musical, a very successful musical, and Andy's took the his musical from, I guess, bedroom creation to UK tour, regional tour, whatever you want to call it, is probably a, a good way to summarise it. So from from nothing to something, you know, that's why I wanted you on the show. Um, I, I've come in and worked with Andy at a very... 
I think the latest stage of um, the project. Um, and so I want Andy to to tell the listeners what what that journey's been like. And I'm going to kind of get you to talk a little bit around it and I'll kind of probe in with, you know, the questions and the challenges that you face. But No Horizon, I, I, I'm going to ask people that don't know the story or the background to go to the website. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, which get published with every episode. So I don't want to go too much into the the, the whole storyline, but give us, I guess the question that I want to ask you that will give people that first insight is why, why write a musical and how did you choose the, the subject? Uh, the subject really appealed to me. Um, it, it was a, um, it was a local story. It's based on a true story, um, and I, I like inspiring stories. And it, it leapt out to me. It was mentioned to me by a colleague about it. In an absolute nutshell, it was a, um, uh, a guy called Nicholas Saunderson, born in 1682, blinded when he was one, got smallpox, lost his eyes, no braille, uh, came out from out in the sticks, fairly humble origins, uh, and yet he had this brilliance for mathematics and. Uh, uh, very, very insightful individual in many areas. He taught himself to read by running his fingers over the gravestones in the local churchyard and ultimately ended up as Lucasian Professor of Maths, member of the Royal Society. Um, absolute preeminent scientist of his day with huge respect that spread Europe wide. And it should never have happened. It was by dint of his personality, his character, his uh, unwillingness to accept the limitations that uh, had kind of had befallen him. Um, and it was just, it's kind of up my street, that kind of stuff. And I'll just jump in there because that's not even, that's because that's a very quick synopsis. His Nicholas Saunderson's story is phenomenal. And I would urge anybody who's just listened to that and thinks, hang on a minute, what did you just say? Please go and read what is on the No Horizon musical website and delve, just delve into his story. And it is, it's, it's, it's nearly unbelievable, isn't it, Andy? It is, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the kind of icing on the cake for me, really, was the fact that nobody knew who the hell he was. And so um, that forgotten story, uh, it just seemed like a just a brilliant opportunity. Uh, why I decided to put it into a musical, um, the, the odd thing is, I don't really like music theatre. <laughs> I'm not good, I can't stand stuff like cats and uh, I, I like stories. That's that, you know, that I always have done ever since I was a kid. Yeah. But what I don't like is, uh, you know, Starlight Express, that kind of thing, I do, which is just unbearable. Um, I so think I, I share like, that same view. I'm not one for a musical, and I don't really do any of the kids stuff either. The Disney stuff, I just cannot bear it. Yeah, so I, I don't kind of quite know. I, what had happened was that uh, when I started teaching, uh, because I got an interest in songwriting, uh, the, the, the absolute beginnings of it all, I had a pupil who wrote a really good story. We'd been to a mill, and she wrote a really good story, gave him a scenario. Um, and for some reason or other, I thought, oh, I could put some songs to this and we could do it um, as, as a school play, if you like. So these kids were 10, 11. Um, and so I wrote some songs and we did it. Freedom Road, it was called. Um, and if I'm honest with you, what actually happened was that I got loads of really good feedback, uh, which completely bowled me over and I got a bit carried away, really, I suppose. So it was that thing about... Uh, uh, positive encouragement, basically. And so then I start thinking, oh, well, maybe I can do this. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I then wrote another one. Again, we used to take the kids out at school. And it was all about the educational side of it, really, to be honest with you. It was all about, I saw what it could do for quiet kids, for kids who passed under the radar, who suddenly started to shine and have, you know, found gifts in kids that otherwise wouldn't have been found. Um, and I loved that. Um, and so it, it was largely the education side of it. Then when I heard this story, uh, I, I, I decided I wanted to do something for adults. So about, this is way back in 2003. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd written something with a colleague and we were going to write the, the Saunderson show as a pair. And then she got pregnant. Uh, and by this time, we got a big Arts Council grant and she said, I'm not going to be able to do it. So um, I think it was Christmas when I found that out, sometime around about then. And we were due to do it, I don't know, summer, May, I don't know. 
Uh, but all of a sudden, there was huge pressure on to get it written. I used to write the song, she'd write the script. So I, I, I had no alternative, really, but to write the whole thing myself. Um, and that's how the original, it was a community musical, massively different um, in many ways to what it's like now. Um, yeah, well, so- I'll tell you what, let's go into some of the details because I'm quite keen to look at the differences um, from a production standpoint. And one of my questions was, what was the first version of No Horizon like? Now, I want to know things like, where was it? And, you know, how many people came? How did you get your tickets out? Did you publicise it? Any of that kind of stuff. What did that first performance look like back in the day? Um, well, it, it went down really well, is what I'd say. Um, but when I look back on it myself, I, I just know it was so monumentally flawed. But I think we, we were blessed because we had a cast of about, I don't know, 80 people. We had a choir in it. We did it at Penniston Paramount. It was a story about Thurston. So what I got really was a really, really warm audience who were up for it, uh, plus lots of people in it who then bring their either parents or their kids or their grand grandparents or husbands or wives. So in actual fact, there was a lot of local interest in it anyway. So the audiences were good. The response was really good. Um, and again, I, I had it... Had it bombed at that stage I would have probably abandoned the whole thing um, but it, there was a bit of a vibe about it in Penniston um, and um, I, I, again just positive encouragement just enabled me to see that there might be a future then and then at that stage it, what, what was very similar then just to put a bit of context in there, Andy, when, when we've just said Penniston, now Penniston's the town where both myself and Andy, that's the biggest town that we're near to, and the story about Nicholas Saunerson is um, in Thilston, which is only a couple of miles up the road, so it's there is that sense that whole community are intrigued by it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it was. And also, you know, that... that local heritage aspect to it. There was a lot going for it, really, in the sense that people latched onto it. But I always felt like there was a, there was a, the story was something that which would, would translate way beyond Penniston, um, because it, the human interest in it, uh, the kind of rags to riches, the unforgotten true story, it just seemed to have such a lot going for it. And it's an earthy and gritty kind of musical. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Probably closest in character, perhaps, to... Blood Brothers, in the sense that it's uh, it's got you know Blood Brothers is not uh, schmaltzy singing and dancing type thing, is it? It's it's, it's, it's more like that in the in the nature of its character, really. You're talking uh, musicals. You're going to lose me if you ask me for opinions on musicals, Andy. I'll tell you the posters look good, but um, <laughs> yeah. about musicals themselves. Um, it was a homemade. It was homemade. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Basically, I did it. I had a friend, Dave Cooper, who's still involved with us uh, today, and he was an absolute legend. Uh, I've, I've got a friend who was in Penniston Am Dram Society, Mike Goodwin, and he uh, he directed it. And it was all very much kind of, oh, I know this person and uh, we can do that. So the, I designed all the posters. I just, you know, I, me and Dave went around Penniston putting things up on lampposts. We, we, we were ringing local radio stations and just uh, it, we were doing everything. And in retrospect, how I did it while I was deputy head, I have absolutely no idea. Um, you were passionate about it, right? You wanted to do it that much that yeah. you went out and did it yourself. Yeah, you didn't have a you didn't have a, a, a grant or any budget for marketing. It was the well, I did. I had I had um, a grant of uh, really generous at the time, Arts Council grant, twenty four thousand pounds. But what actually was about that was all about community engagement, right? So it paid for the theatre and it paid for all those types of things. It did pay for publicity, um, but it, it, it essentially it was about the engagement side of things. So there were all kinds of projects that were running alongside it. Uh, uh, where, right kids and things like that so you know there was the basically one project was the show and then the other there were several other things that were very demanding time-wise that ran along outside it so the funding that we did have funding for it um but no nobody was paid and and i didn't know what i was doing down i'll be honest with you and it's all been learning by doing that right absolutely and i think this is what intrigues me most and what um i would hope that if we if we've got some listeners out there that that are listening because they've picked up on the fact that your passion is is was music essentially or the, or the arts i think you in your words you describe yourself as a big advocate of the arts you mm. know if they're sat listening and they have this burning desire 
um, to do something or go out and, and work on a project. Just start something that they've either drop, let drop by the wayside or they've had a chance to do over this lockdown period and you know pick up a brush or pick up an instrument and get going again to hear that you did that you know but without the lockdown scenario you were still working the full-time job um because you wanted to do it and tell me about that sense of reward once you'd once you'd done that performance i mean how did it feel when you'd done it and put it on yeah utterly uh inspiring and and uh, invigorating there's no two ways about it i mean just picking up on what you said that it seems to me there's, there's, there's two crucial bits in, in in all of this one is starting this is my life and i think it relates to many people one is starting and the other one is carrying on so yeah. uh, in actual fact you know the the ideas out the difficult thing is it the difficult thing is to actually take that step and engage with the idea um and because it's hard work it's easy getting an idea but it's hard work then to actually manifest it in some way shape or form and then the other hard bit is when things get quite difficult um to actually carry on now i i think i was lucky with regard to no horizon the first time because um i don't think had things happened in a different order no horizon would never have existed i think had me colleague uh, got pregnant before we got the arts council grant then i think i would never have done it but what actually happened was she, she got pregnant after the arts council grant and therefore i had an obligation to fulfill what i claimed i was going to do with the arts council grant you had and no so, way out you, were, you 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 had to do it didn't you exactly it's the <laughs> external pressure the deadline it's the it's the necessity that actually enabled me to carry on doing it when otherwise I think I probably wouldn't have followed through on it. I love um, it. And I was looking, to, I went back through before we got on the call, I was looking back through the No Horizon programme, the latest one that I'd designed and was reading oh. some of your words that you'd put in there. And you describe your journey so far as novel and peculiar. Yeah, would you consider? And I've said it's putting. Do you consider that the norm for a small theatre company? Uh, we certainly weren't an, a, a normal theatre company. So uh, our, our theatre company was myself, my colleagues Max and Helen Reed. Uh, Max got involved in it, and I think it was two thousand and five. Uh, he, he had a, a, a business background um, and became as passionate about it as me. And then subsequently, Helen came on board, brilliant organiser and and. and um, sort of facilitator um, and so we're all when we set up right hand theatre um, so I kind of leapt on a bit since since 2003 but when we set up right hand theatre um, we've got no theatre background really whatsoever and you know as a writer I absolutely suffer from imposter syndrome I've got grade 6 piano that's all I've got I've never been to college. I've never studied theatre. I've never studied music beyond beyond that level. Um, uh, uh, but what we had got, I think, was loads of transferable skills from our professional careers. Mm-hmm. So um, that enabled us to... Um, that gave us a background of understanding about how things work professionally. But what we lacked was the... Was the um, the understanding of the theatre world. So we had, you know, if we had our time again, right, even right back when we did it a second time in 2006, we'd have fundamentally done that year differently. Um, but we didn't know. And, and there's something brilliant about just learning by doing, isn't there? And, and, and that resourcefulness that you need. And ultimately, it's been a totally fascinating journey because I can chart it all back, various key, key points. And when, when we'd done Edinburgh, yeah, well, we, let's talk about Edinburgh because that's a big part. That was a big um, thing to happen, right? Um, you took the show up to the Edinburgh Fringe. We, we did, and we did it up there for a month. Um, and and it, it, again, it, it was the kind of thing that uh, if you knew what you were getting yourself into, you might think twice about it, but it seemed like a good idea at the time, really. We were going to go and do a week. Uh, originally, or I was pushing for a week. I think Max might have done do 10 days, something like that. I forget exactly. But we were certainly only going to dip our toes in the water. Um, and then, for, we, perhaps on reflection, we started thinking, well, you know, by the time we've got there, we'll be coming home. So we decided we'd do a fortnight 
Um, and then we started talking to people. Uh, there was a PR lady who helped us a lot. And she, well, she said she'd only take us on if we were doing the full month. Uh, and her rationale was, well, she said to us, well, if you only do a fortnight, you'll be going home before you started. <laughs> and just when you start to get some traction, um, it'll um, you, you'll, you'll be on your way out. And so at that point, we started thinking again. And, and she was absolutely right. You know, it, it's a gradual, slow-burning build. If, if you're lucky at Edinburgh, and we, we were lucky. Um, so we started with audience of about 30, and, and by the end, the top was just under 200. Awesome. So it, 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 it worked brilliant, but then we kind of thought we'd take you there to put it in the shop window, uh, and we did it, and we were on a real high. Um, we 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 kind of came home, and and, and but then we realised that the shop window ceased to exist, you know, and that people weren't beating a path to our door, and the next steps were just as difficult as as, as anything else because basically. It, the thing about theatre is it sort of evaporates when it happens and you're, you're in this bubble and it's all brilliantly exciting and the whole camaraderie of being in a great team that's functioning well together and then it finishes on the last night and everyone's on a high yeah. and then you're all at home and it's, it's gone. And then it's and you, done, yeah. You know, you know, I might be interested in this and they said, well, when are you putting it on? I'll come and see it. And you think, oh, just bloody put it on. Um, <laughs> didn't come and see it. Um, so... So we then we then we got involved with 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 Ian, who's who is um, a fabulous guy at Barnsley Civic. Um, Let me just before we get on to the Barnsley stuff, um, Andy, the Edinburgh Fringe. When you took it up to the Edinburgh Fringe, that, that was one of the first um, times that I got to work with you and Max um, on some of the design work and some of the branding. So I think that must have been the first time where you'd. Um, needed or or sensed that that made that decision to engage with um, a professional in order to promote, you know, through posters and get some marketing out there. Is that right? Was that on the advice of of other people that you needed to to get that on board? Well, it, it wasn't the first time actually that we engaged with professionals. It, in the, I probably never talked to you before about this, but in two thousand and six. Um, so 2003 was massively homespun. 2006, we did it on a kind of very, uh, I suppose, professional and inverted commas footing because it was professional in the sense that everything around it was professional, but um, uh, including design. Uh, but it was um, we didn't pay the actors anything. I think one person may have got paid something. So right. on the stage, it was it was a, an amateur performance, but everything around it in terms of the, the publicity and so on and so forth was done to a much higher spec than we'd done it before. And if I'm honest with you, it, it, it was done really well. We did some, we, you know, it looked very credible. Um, and we, we got some great resources out of that. Um, but uh, again, we learned through that, the, the materials that we had uh, in advance of that um, didn't suit us when we went to Edinburgh, for example, or didn't yeah. suit the next stage of the journey. Um, so when when you came on board, that you, that was actually the second element of design that we had done when we went to Edinburgh that time. And and you might remember that we actually ended up we used. Uh, I say we didn't use any of the resources. We did actually. I remind myself that we had we had um, a photo um, of the lead actor from two thousand and six. So this is kind of like. Um, when we got to number six, this is ten years after the event, and we used that same photo uh, initially uh, uh, in some of the promotional stuff for, uh, for Edinburgh. Um, it subsequently got got replaced. But yeah. Uh, so, it, but each time it 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 has progressed. Um, basically, is is kind of the nature of the beast, if you like, because from a local performance up to Edinburgh Fringe, there's obviously a lot a lot more demand on attracting people to your venues and getting bums on seats. Um, You can't do that uh, whilst working a full-time job and produce the posters yourself, can you? That's where you do need those other people around you to to lean on and to guide you. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And my my background in education, I suppose, uh, was different from Max's. Max had quite a good handle on all the, um, I suppose, the, the, the... promotional side of things because he'd been more involved in a uh, that kind of competitive uh, environment I suppose so his business uh, work that he'd been doing so he had um, a, an insight into how all that would work 
um, which I've had to kind of acquire through the whole thing. And when I, when I do look back at the various evolutions of the show, every one has moved on um, in, in quite a considerable way um, ever since we first set out. And I suppose, you know, that's been one of the great rewarding things about it all has been the kind of learning, personal learning through the, through the whole thing. Well, that's one of, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask. If you met yourself 10 years ago, bumped into Andy in a bar, well, it wouldn't be a bar, it'd be the Huntsman, knowing you. Um, if you <laughs> met yourself in the Huntsman 10 years ago, what would you say to yourself? Uh, so 10 years ago, that was... Uh, that was 2010, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, um, I can do that math. So yeah, I'm <laughs> uh, first off, I'd, I'd warn myself that in two years' time, I'd be about to have cancer. Um, I, maybe I wouldn't do that. Might not be a very well, good thing. Well, would <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't do. Um, but what, I mean, I could, in terms of advice, uh, yeah, Dan, there'd be, there'd be too much to mention, to be honest with you. It would be... Um, all right, well, pick, would, pick, pick, pick at least one or two points that you'd say, right, you're going to need to know this or don't do that or whatever. Just a couple of things you'd look back um, on. Right, two, two most pertinent things. I suppose in relation, in relation to branding... Yeah, keep it on with the, yeah, the theatre side of things. What, what things yeah. would you... Yeah. From your perspective then, the branding side of things, uh, about a really coherent message that runs through everything um, and we, we, I think we did do that pretty much at Edinburgh we didn't do that in 2006 we had uh, so the, for example the front of the programme looked different to the um, the posters and uh, there were other things so there was, there was a variety we had, we had um, some PVC banners done that didn't have any kind of logo on so the consistency of the marketing and branding message, I would say, would be an absolute um, essential. And when I think about it, even at Edinburgh, I can picture um, at least two images that were used um, for, for, for the show. Um, whereas I think when we were about to embark on the, the cancelled tour most recently, uh, that was every, everything that we had, the image ran through everything that we were doing, I think, in a much more consistent manner. So that's, that's absolutely... So 10 years ago, you say, look, you're going to do a UK tour, believe it or not. Get your branding yeah. right and get it on point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And and the other, the other, oh, go on. I was just going to say, and I wish we had some um, evidence or some figures to say, because look, you got twice as many bums on seats when you did it like that, but we don't because the most recent yeah. tour, unfortunately, had to be postponed. Um, yeah. And I do want to kind of come on to that. Um, give me a last point, though, if you had another, if you'd met yourself 10 years ago. Have you got anything uh, yeah, else well, you'd this, say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, find a better way of trying to get involved in the professional theatre world um, because that that became the absolute catalyst. So when we came back from Edinburgh, we thought we'd put it in the shop window, but actually, essentially, we'd reached a dead end. Um but what happened was that um, uh, with the, the Ian Marley at the Barnsley Civic, who was going to come and see the show at Edinburgh and never did do it because he was driving up and had a shoulder problem, I think, or a back problem, and went home. Uh, but to his eternal credit, uh, I went to see Ian afterwards and he met his artists in residence at the Civic. Um, and that that was an absolute catalyst that w- nothing would have happened except for him doing that. So basically, it was the first bit of credibility that we had from, uh, in the arts world professionally. So my advice to my old self in 2010 would have been try and get to that point much earlier um, because that's, that's what started us on the, on the way. I guess um, embrace or look for... The right support um, around yeah. you is probably yeah. a good summary. Then, you know, surround yourself with people who um, value and appreciate what you're doing. Um, uh, avoid the naysayers. Yeah, yeah. And there's plenty uh, of them. Everyone's a uh, naysayer. Uh, yeah. I think if I'm absolutely honest with you, through the whole No Horizon thing, I've had I have had monumental um, support from people. Uh, the naysayers. Um, 
uh, have only ever been in the form of uh, the odd review here and there. We found Edinburgh, uh, we called them reluctant husbands, countless people who <laughs> didn't want to come, but the wife wanted to come. But we saw afterwards in the bar or whatever, who were saying how glad they were that they'd come. And we knew it We knew it got to people. Some people love the science side of it. Some people love the, uh, the story side of it. Some people love the heritage side of it. Some people love the music side of it. Some people love the fact that it's about challenge. And we talked to a lot of people who've got uh, a perspective of their own where, you know, their lives involved a good degree of challenge and hurdles, yeah. uh, disability, um, uh, alcoholism. Um, and, and it cuts through all of these different and, and can people connect with it at all these different levels. And the last thing we wanted to do was market it in a way that would not get something across about this. Um, and, and so in terms of a kind of a, um, a, a coherent branding message, we were trying really to uh, ride four or five horses at the same time. Um, well, we did. We it, we worked we worked together on it, and we did spend a long time getting it right. Um, it was important that we we got the right visual um, in every sense, and we got the right message, and we came up with the right um, identity, the right logo mark for it to be used. And you'll remember if if when we, when we first set out, some of our early attempts would have absolutely turned off that mainstream audience, I think, in retrospect. Yeah. Another thing, I remember I remember we changed the, the, the basic colour, didn't we? Because at one stage, it, there, were, there, were, there were blue designs coming through based on a blue theme. And yeah. we, we, did, we wanted to make it a redder theme, which was a much more warm and inspiring kind of feel to it, rather than that we felt like it was getting a bit cold. Absolutely. Um, and I think we just we explored... A lot of different options and we just you know we made sure that we discussed and as any creative process is or should be feedback driven looking at what what's going to work for um each audience um, yeah. uh, you know i think we got there now I, I was really happy with how how everything turned out and i think if people do go to the website they'll still get a sense of all of the the visual elements that that, that i created or we created together um to, to promote the show and you know I, I really I enjoyed working on that and I, I was actually going to say to you when you were mentioning about um, reluctant husbands and um, people that would come and see the show I know of at least two or three families within the locality that were that had bought tickets to go and see the performance down at the Barnsley Civic and they didn't buy tickets the first time round and that oh. is husband and wife both. Um, yeah. And yeah. for me, that that was my pat on the back, as well as obviously the the, the work that you guys are doing, because I thought, well, I've engaged them in a visual sense, and then they've bought into it and gone, we're going to go to this. Yeah, yeah, um, no, that's that's good too. We, we were, as you know, we were we were thrilled to bits. We all ended up with uh, branding wise. Um, and, and and it was a it was a lengthy process, wasn't it? You know, some of those early attempts that we that we had, they were thinking it's not quite right. And then, in actual fact, we ended up using uh, a, 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 the, the basic stock image um, on a lot of the posters. On the posters was was an image that we we'd not really intended having an image like that. Was it you know, the image of the central character, a very kind of proud, positive stance? Yeah. Um, and, and we weren't thinking about. Uh, a, um, a, a character on it at all to start with. Um, I think you just have, yeah. We just we went with what felt right, and we, mm. you know, we, we we tried out a few things. We obviously worked as a team to make sure that it was it was what we wanted. But yeah, I mean, let's let's push on from that and um, kind of recap or at least summarise where we where you guys have got to with No Horizon. So as a performance. You did it, it. It did the the local stuff. You did the Edinburgh Fringe. I, I definitely class that as a massive success. And then it kind of wasn't quite. But then it it came back with a real bang. And this is what we've just we have really just gone into. But the latest iteration of No Horizon really got. It was to get you into new venues, bigger venues, um, with a much more modern, is it modern twist the right way to phrase it? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Um, and um, that was all planned in for this, well, what are we in, 2020, so for the last three months you should have been out and about, right? 
yeah, it was. I mean, it was a monumental blow, actually. So two days before we were due to tour, and this is kind of the culmination of 16 years' work. Um, and then uh, we're told that um, the recommendation at that stage was that people stopped going out and socialising. It wasn't the actual lockdown, yeah. but effectively it was for theatres. That was every theatre shut the doors uh, thereafter. So the tour never was after all that time. Um, and, it, and it was it was at the time uh, really devastating. Um, subsequently, uh, I suppose as we all started to realise actually that this is kind of more a light matter of life and death for, for many people. All of a sudden, cancellation of a theatre tour doesn't seem like it's such a devastating thing really, does it? Um, so it gave us some perspective and uh, and then subsequently, uh, and, and, and I started thinking, well, it might actually be fairly straightforward to get it back on again. Um, well, what you know, is got- next? I've not really had a chance to chat to you. What, what are the new plans? Are there any plans afoot? Where, where's it going? Um, it's too early, Dan, actually. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I've had some conversations about it. Um, the reality of it is that, uh, I mean, we've got some dates penciled in for next March, Um but not all of the places we were due to tour to. Okay. Um, it's dependent again. I, I mean, by the time we were we were due to tour this time, we got uh, a, a, a almost six figure grant from the Arts Council to tour with. We got twenty thousand pounds from the Foyle Foundation to tour with. There's no guarantees that we'd be able to get anything like that level of funding again. Mm-hmm. Um, and without the funding, it won't happen. It's as simple as that. I mean, there's also many logistical issues to consider as well in terms of whether or not, you know, because basically next spring or autumn is where we are, um, where we might be in terms of getting it out there. And the, the practicalities of, uh, you know, I suppose my life, where will I be in that amount of time? Where will Max and Ellen be in that amount of time? Uh, who Will knows then? Be... There's a lot of different things at play then, isn't there? It's not a done deal. It's not like you can just, can we rebook that for next year, please? It's it's not yeah. like that at all, is it? Yeah. Well, I'd hoped originally it was going to be, and then as time's gone on, I've started to realise, and like I said, you know, we have got some dates pencilled in for March next year, um, but n- nobody knows where we're going to be. Do they? We, 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 there's no Arts Council grants available at the moment, so I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't be applying to anything. Um, uh, we don't know when that's going to start again. Uh, I do think I do think they'd be predisposed to wanting to support us again because it's it very much suits the Arts Council's inclusivity agenda. It's a, it's a show, uh, and we have to be careful with this as well. But it's a, it's a show that's got disability at its heart, um, and the Arts Council um, are predisposed to inclusivity. Um, and so it's a show in many ways uh, I don't want it to sound too grand but it's, it's unlike many others put it that way in yeah. that most shows don't support this, this, this level of inclusivity we've got a visually impaired very talented visually impaired lead actor as well as a visually impaired director um, and we had to be very careful as well about making sure that we didn't undermine our mainstream marketing message by making it come across as being a niche disability type project, which are often tucked away in um, studios, in you know, watched by fifteen to twenty people, we very much view this as um, as being something that's got absolute um, engagement possibilities for the for the broader cross section of the population, and you know, ultimately. It was always the way, even from way back in 2003, I'd always got the kernel of a dream about uh, about the West End. Um, you know, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that. Fantasy as it was, it's got progressively closer to reality and it's still a long way from reality. But uh, I know, but if you think about where you are now compared to um, 2003, um, getting bookings up at Theatre Royal in York, um, as yep. opposed to down in... Peniston Playhouse, which a great venue that is, but there's a huge comparison there. You know, you just never say never. No, never say never, and and I think that's that's pretty much where I am at the moment with regard to the whole project. Um, I, I I find it hard to 
see a way it's going to come about in the nearest future and therefore that necessarily creates uncertainty as to whether or not it ever will see the light of day again and having come so close previously um, it just seems like now is absolutely not the time to throw the towel in. What I always ask my guests, Andy, is I like them to choose um, one of their boldest brands or a brand that's really wowing them at the moment, and I make it the boldest brand for each episode. Have you got a brand that you would like to feature on the episode? Uh, it's very tongue-in-cheek, Dan. Yeah, very tongue-in-cheek, but um, yeah, I have, yeah. yeah. Who, who's uh, doing it for you then? Tell me, who, who have you chosen? Uh, it's, it's Brand Boris. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I think Boris, uh, in terms of doing exactly what it says on the tin, if you like, he established himself through um, Brexit and through the general election, uh, in my eyes at least, as um, someone hugely unreliable, a liar, a charlatan, no moral compass, and most recently is conducting himself in a way which aligns perfectly with his brand. Um, and I, I just think he's he, he would be my my brand of the day, if you like. I think brand he's, for uh, the episode. I like it. I mean, yeah, no one's come on and put it in or twisted it on its head in a way. So it's a brand that's doing what it says, but not necessarily for the good for the good of anybody. Not um, in my eyes, Dan. Not in my eyes. <laughs> well, but, I'm not um, going to get political. I'd not focus no. on that at all. But I admire the artist in you tw- turning that question on its head um, <laughs> I'm not going to put a link to anything to do with Boris or that party in this in the show notes but I, I hope a few people have had a, a bit of a smile out of that well so, that's uh, yeah take it in the spirit it's intended absolutely well listen I kind of want to round off and just say that um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you Andy and I think and I would hope that any listeners that have listened to the to the entirety of this have really seen your journey from um, from from doing something that you hated and having to change course. And I'm talking about when you you did your accounting, you were like, "Nope, this isn't right," and <laughs> finding yourself into that zone of a career path that a, so many people do. And a lot of people end up in a career path that they love, but you found yourself in the career path that you loved, and then you—not that you fell out of love with it, but you—you you, you remembered a passion or a, a, a love for the arts, um, and in particular your music, and then being able to say to yourself, "I'm going to follow this, and I'm going to do this." Um, I'd want you to kind of summarise with out of that entire journey, what would you say was that biggest? moment that thing that time when everything changed for you your biggest brand dividing moment and from brand andy i think i'd probably have to say uh edinburgh um coming back from edinburgh that was the that was the time when i was sort of thrown into turmoil i suppose by uh about what i was uh spending my time doing so that's that's your biggest brand dividing moment that's when you reshaped you, um, yeah. I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and for the better because you said yourself you experienced that, um, that that not weight off your shoulders, but just that enlightenment of I really enjoy doing this, and I'm I'm excited when I get out of bed. Um, it, it was almost like you'd found your calling again. Yeah, it absolutely was, and uh, and I, you know if if. if I think most people have something in there, don't they? That they that they actually that they love doing, and you know, for some people it might be walking in the concert. I like that as well. Actually, if I'm honest with you, but it might be walking in the concert. Other people, it's, it's raising animals. Other people, it's uh, it's artwork of some nature or other. And I just think everybody's got something to contribute. I always felt like in education, you know, we we were there was such an emphasis on reading, writing, and maths, um, uh, and. Of course, yeah, they're really important, and for some people, it becomes really important that they absolutely master them to the nth, to the nth, master it to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. But for many people, 
all you need is one thing that becomes your thing. I, I, I bump into kids I used to teach that were very, very practical kids, but maybe not that academic. And I see what they're doing now and I think, yeah, well, you know, absolutely ideal. It suits them down to the ground. I won't mention any names, but it happened to me just the other day. So this is a kid I used to teach at primary school and what he's doing now, I'm thinking, what a perfect match. You know, you're going to absolutely, he's happy in his job, totally fulfilling life. Um, and that's his thing. You know, it. it's, yeah. it's, um, You've got to be happy, man. You've got to be happy. You have. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I've just said it already, but I'm going to say again, thanks for coming on the show, Andy. If anybody's interested in um, the musical that Andy has written and wants to find out more, it's nohorizonthemusical.com. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Are there any other links that you want to share, Andy? So have you got anything for your own musical stuff? Is there anything else that you want to add in for the listeners? Well, it's kind of you to ask, but actually no is the answer to that. And I think that's partly what I'm thinking about with this record I'm doing at the moment. That it is, it, at the moment, it's kind of demo standard stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but it has really made me think that um, I, I, I'll have to get some kind of outlet somewhere or other just to get stuff. Um, I, you know, if, 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 you, if you've got books, you want to put them in a bookcase. If you've got songs, you want to sort of put them somewhere where people can access them. And so um, at the moment... Nothing That's else not. to share. Well, look, that, we'll, we'll chat no. about it over a pint if we ever get back yeah. to the pub at some point. <laughs> we will. We will, Dan. We will. It'll happen. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Andy. It's a lovely sunny day. For anybody that is um, stuck inside like us talking on microphones, we're going to go outside now. So all that's left for me to say is thanks very much for coming on the show, Andy. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, total pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Dan. So here we are, the end of another episode. If you want to read more about my own work or my business, or if you feel like applying to be a guest on the show, which I am looking for new guests, if you feel like anything on the show has resonated with you on any level, please get in touch. You can do all of this via my website, which is danielocock.com. You'll be able to listen to more episodes on there. You can see some of my designs, some of my illustration work as well. You'll also find all my social media channels. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and there is some stuff on Instagram. You'll be able to engage with me directly on there. The podcast itself is available to download via most of the major platforms out there. So think in Spotify, iTunes, things like that. If you like the show, then please don't forget to hit share and it would be great to read a review or two from yourselves. Um, Just tell me what you think about the show. I will read some of those out at the end of each episode and I'd like to give some special mentions and thanks to anyone who does take the time to write one. And on that note, I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode. And remember, if you're not proud of your brand, how do you expect anyone else to be?